This is Lexis, the podcast all about linguistics. Hi, I'm Matthew Butler. I'm Jackie Glancy. I'm Dan Clayton. And I'm Lisa Casey. Hello and welcome to this edition of Lexis and our regular Language in the News segment where we look at topical language issues in the media. Um, Matt, you've got something to say about uh, some headlines this time, haven't you? Yeah, so we're going to have a look at a couple of headlines, one from The Guardian and one from The Daily Mail about the sacking of Rebecca Long-Bailey, who's a cabinet member of the Labour Party. So The Guardian headline, Rebecca Long-Bailey sacked from Labour shadow cabinet by Keir Starmer, and to contrast it, We'll look at this one from the Daily Mail, Starmer reignites Labour civil war. So first of all, what I thought was really interesting about the Guardian one was how the actor is positioned at the end in this prepositional phrase by Keir Starmer. So it's Rebecca Long-Bailey who is being positioned at the front and the actual actor, the, the person responsible for the sacking, is positioned at the end. And um, by contrast, the Daily Mail uh, headline Starmer reignites Labour civil war uh, positions Starmer uh, right at the start so he's foreground as the person who is responsible for this event which has happened that is the sacking of Rebecca Long-Bailey and also note in the Daily Mail headline there are the metaphors reignite and civil war and Jackie I think you've got more to say about that. Yeah so I, th- I thought the the Daily Mail one was particularly interesting um and I think positioning Starmer in the sub as in the subject position, so it's Starmer who reignites the civil war. It kind of um, it represents him as um, as being really active in entrenching divisions within the Labour Party, um, mm. which is you know something that the, that the Labour Party has um, has struggled with um, over over the years. Um, and I think that you know the, the language choice, the lexical choices are, are really interesting. Um, reignites suggests that you know he's kind of fanning the flames of a problem that, that may have um, died down if he hadn't taken um, his actions. Mm. And uh, and the idea of a civil war, I think, is is really interesting as well. Um, Dan, did you want to talk about the civil war bit? Well, there's I suppose it's one of those kind of quite common metaphors we get isn't it around politics mm. um, we see we see lots of um you know semantic fields of of conflict aren't they often introduced so you know there's there's often discussion about um you know people in parliament sort of ambushing somebody or an attack so we're quite used to that sort of language aren't we mm. um i suppose I as he- well Go on, sorry. I think here it's particularly interesting because the the the, the language of conflict is used um, mm. within one party, isn't it? So it's mm. suggesting yeah. that it's a very divided party. Um, mm. And I think that was very much the narrative that, that has been used to um, by opponents of the, the Labour Party to yeah. try and suggest that they haven't got their act together, that they're, they're not, a, you know, a, a, a kind of a, a coherent voice. Yeah, I was mm. just going to say, and that definitely reflects the sort of Daily Mail narrative specifically about mm. the Labour Party that obviously isn't present in the Guardian headline where um, the, mm. you know, it's Rebecca Long-Bailey that's foregrounded rather mm. than Starmer who did the sacking, um, potentially suggesting that there was something that she needed to answer to, although it's not, yeah. again, that's implied. It's not very, it's not very explicit uh, because it's a passive construction. So they've, they've mm. taken, but, but interestingly then added Starmer on the end as the active agent as a, yeah, really interesting choice from them. What's interesting as well is this built-in presupposition mm. of, mm. Starmer reigniting the Labour civil war. Yeah. So by saying he's reigniting it, it the, the, the headline is assuming that it's already happened before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and 
I think as well this this choice of this idea of reigniting um this metaphor I think it's quite interesting how it suggests that it Keir Starmer is uh fu- fully responsible for his own actions and is the person responsible entirely for uh, this event which has happened yes so that sort of draws on uh, a reader's past knowledge of um anti-semitism in the labor party mm. kind of as a as a long-standing idea and again the the guardian headline doesn't really refer to that at all but the mm. daily mail one certainly deliberately tries to and it's i think it's also quite interesting just thinking about how keir starmer himself is named in any report about the labor party because it seems to be BBC refer to him as Sir Keir. Mm-hmm. Um, Keir Starmer, you know, full name there given in the Guardian one, but just Starmer as a surname in, in the mail. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to see the sort of positions adopted maybe when you, you, they want to kind of foreground a particular part of his, you know, social class, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, by all accounts, he came from a fairly sort of working class, lower middle class background um, in terms of sort of social occupation. Um, but obviously is now Sir has been knighted um, as part of his um, you know, service for uh, service to politics in the past. I think was it either he was a head of um, he was a DPP, wasn't he? Director of uh, Public Prosecutions. So there is that kind of element there about what they choose to call him. Um, and certainly, you know, you could argue maybe a sort of political dimension to that. OK, so that's that's um, looking at um, sort of UK politics. But um it's an interesting story that Lisa's picked up on um, about politics on the other side of the pond and um, the 2020 election campaign that uh, Donald Trump is uh, waging over there. Yeah, call me a glutton for punishment, but I do I do <laughs> like to keep an eye on American politics. Um, and at the minute, this came this came to me through my Twitter feed because I don't. I don't actually keep that close an eye on it. Um, But Trump's comeback rally, as it was being called in Tulsa, um, kind of post lockdown, was being touted as his campaign team as his sort of, um, you know, fabulous return to the Mm -hmm. campaign trail after after lockdown. Um, And then a lot of the seats in um, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, were empty. Mm. Um, And it transpires afterwards, there were lots of claims that it was TikTok fans and K-pop stands who had reserved empty seats, uh, sorry, reserved seats and then left them empty on purpose. Mm. Um, so there was lots and lots of kind of frenzied reporting around this TikTok generation. Um, they were called Zoomers. They were called Gen Zers. Um, they were called K-pop stands. Fans. Um, they were called TikTok users, and there was this lovely kind of lexical array that, for me, kind of crossed over with language and technology, language and age, um, and news reporting uh, all mm. together in this sort of lovely melee of stuff that was being reported. TikTok it's- is a social media platform where um, users tend to post short videos, um, and in some of the news reporting, they'd talked about how it's become known, particularly outside of tiktok users um as you know a silly platform where people dance along to tunes and that was it what was interesting about some of the reporting on this is that they characterize tiktok users now as uh, political activists Mm. uh, who deliberately use the platform to rally politically around kind of Mm. this um idea of trolling trump and kind of beating him at his own social media game um which was really interesting um yeah, it was. And and what was interesting um, 
also was something that we talked about in a previous episode about using hashtags to kind of mm. rally around a political affiliation or to demonstrate some kind of shared social uh, ideal or goal. Um, and really interestingly, under in the comments under some of the some of the TikTok users who claimed that they had reserved seats with a view to keeping them empty what you had was hundreds of thousands of comments that all used really similar syntax mm. so they they seemed to signal that they that they had been part of this trolling mm. of the of this Tulsa rally by saying things like um I had planned to go but and then right. having some ridiculous excuse on the end so I'm just going to give you a couple that, that I spotted um Don I just reserved seats but I forgot I have an appointment to abolish the police or I signed up but I forgot my carpet has terrible separation anxiety or I got a seat but I forgot I live in the Netherlands and they were and they were all like yeah. absurd uh, excuses but all had this really similar syntactic structure I planned to go or I wanted yeah. to go or uh, I meant to go and then a but, and then this, and then this absurd ex excuse on the end. Um, and I thought maybe this syntactic structure acted a little bit like the hashtags that we've mm. talked about before. Mm. That people kind of use them as a as a linguistic code or a symbol to say, "I'm here, we're in this together. Yeah. I'm just like you." Um, and it kind of signaled their affiliation to to all sorts of things. Sort of this left wing idea of trolling Trump, of being a TikTok user. Um, of this idea of being a kind of young uh, social media using activist and again for some of them about you know um, humorously for others a lot more seriously um, if you notice the I've got an appointment to abolish the police that's that's mm. clearly more politically active and deliberate than something like my carpet has separation anxieties yeah. which is really humorous <laughs> and silly um, so and yeah, it was very just, successful wasn't it in in by their terms because yeah. he he was left with loads of empty seats mm. yeah if you yes yeah, a really interesting one again if you look at the reporting according to trump's uh, campaign team no not at all successful uh, and they deliberately kept a bunch of the seats empty to maintain social distancing um but if you listen yeah. to anybody who uh, had supposedly taken part in the trolling then mm. it it was absolutely deliberate and it was and it was their it was their choice to do so so, yeah, I think as well there's there's um the idea of kind of language humorous language is subversive and thinking mm. about how you know you, they would fill in forms for these tickets and that would be all very kind of um formal wouldn't it um but then creating excuses that are just silly yeah. um I think is it kind of pulls the rug from from under people does mm. kind of it signals power in a different way um yeah yeah Definitely. And some of the and they kind of capitalized on the on the formal nature of booking a ticket again mm -hmm. to be silly because lots of people booked tickets under pseudonyms, yeah. which again were absurd. Mm. So we had um, tickets booked under names like Indiana Jones or Fred Weasley uh, or Shrek. Um, and then other ones that were a bit more niche, like Regina George. Mm. Do any of you know who Regina George is? Mm. No. No, no, she was one of the mean girls. She's one of the kind of the head mean girl in the film okay. Mean Girls. So again, quite a niche um, reference that would have been got by certain users of yeah. TikTok mm. or followers of the hashtag or comment commented 
commentators under the hashtag, but no. again, not available to people outside of that social group. Mm. So that wraps things up for Language in the News of this episode. Next, we're going to hear from Dr. Siobhan Gates. So we're really pleased to welcome Dr. Siobhan Gates to this episode of Lexis. Um, Siobhan is a senior researcher at the National Centre for Social Research and uh, got her PhD in linguistics from QMUL. So welcome to the show, Siobhan. Thanks um, for having me. Siobhan, you're a relatively new doctor. Um, yeah. What was your journey from sort of sixth form study to doctorate? We've got quite a few listeners who are kind of in the under 18 bracket mm-hmm. or are teachers of sixth formers. So we're really interested to hear uh, how you got kind of from your sixth form to, to where you've ended up now. So um, when I was in sixth form, I did A-level English language. Um, as well as sociology um, and when I was doing my English language A level um, I actually did I don't know I have no idea what the course structure is like now for A level English language but when I was doing it um, we got to do kind of a bit of research for our coursework mm-hmm. essentially mm-hmm. yeah that's um, still there <laughs> yeah so so I did that and um, what I did for that was um, I actually did some narrative analysis of my cousin because he used to he was younger and he used to like to tell stories and I had these videos um, of him uh, when he was I think it was about five and then another one when he was older and I compared how his kind of narrative structure mm. developed so it was a kind of combination of narrative analysis but also drawing on kind of child language acquisition theory mm. um, and I really enjoyed that and then I think as a lot of um, sixth formers feel I didn't know what I wanted to do at university I knew I wanted to go but I didn't know what I wanted to do so um, I spoke to my English language teacher and she just said what do you actually like at college and you know we talked and she just said it sounds to me like linguistics would be a good thing for you to look for in Mm. a course Um, I'd never heard that word I didn't know what it was um, but I took her advice and that's how I ended up at Sheffield studying uh, English language and linguistics Um, I really, really loved Sheffield um, for my undergrad um, and I really got, I kind of, the course there was really broad, there was lots of different things I did. Um, I remember in my first year I did things like sounds of English, history Mm. of English, structure of English, so just really kind of covering all the basics of of linguistics. but I really got into sociolinguistics because um, I mentioned before I did sociology A-level. So that to me is kind of like an overlap between sociology and linguistics. Um, I also did a couple of sociology modules while I was doing my um, degree as well. So yeah, I really got into sociolinguistics. Again, didn't really know what I wanted to do post-uni. Um, took a couple of years off, uh, worked as a waitress, did some traveling but I just kind of had this itch I wanted to scratch with linguistics. I didn't feel like I was done with linguistics. Um, so then I went to do my master's. I did my master's in um, America at North Carolina State University. That's kind of where I really solidified my interest in social linguistics. And while I was doing my master's, um, I got really interested in um, something called stylistic variation. Mm. So that's um, when people kind of change the way that they speak, depending on who they're talking to, what they're talking about, what they're trying to kind of communicate. Um, so, yeah, so that that's I got really interested in that and um, kind of trying to uh, use kind of uh, more novel techniques to study that. So what I did during my master's was um, basically I uh, gave my dad a recorder and asked him to just carry it around with him. 
so that's kind of what I was interested in there and that's how I what led me to Queen Mary because um, Devyani Sharma works there and that was some research she she had been doing was about similar things and um, I think she, uh, that's what yeah. she was doing when she was working doing her work in Southwark but yeah that's kind of how I ended up where I was and while I was doing all of those things um kind of from an academic point of view I got also got really into kind of doing more outreachy type stuff I wanted to do research that kind of um that ha that I felt had a kind of um a clearer um tangible impact on society yeah. so because I knew that I applied for jobs outside of academia and um yeah and that's how I found the National Centre for Social Research and and um and that's you know we, I still so I'd still use all my research skills that I developed during my master's and my PhD but um the re type of research I do is kind of uh, topic wise is more broad so I still do work um, on children and in schools like I did for my PhD but it's yeah it's broader and it's policy related so kind of you know um, I just did a project about shared parental leave for example which is a policy that where parents can sp split leave when they have a baby so we mm. did some research for the government for that and you know that's because they're currently reviewing those policies so like that's a kind of more immediate tangible impact. Thinking about your research as you said it's, it's been incredibly broad in terms of the topics that you've covered which which element of your research uh, that you've done would you most like our listeners to know about? Well my PhD research was the, the thing that was kind of my research baby I think a lot of people feel like that about their PhDs <laughs> um, and um, and also I think what I found from it was uh, it was really unexpected um, for me and I think for other people as well in linguistics um, and therefore really interesting um, and I, I was able to kind of uncover some details about la teenage language in London that we kind of didn't really know about before. Basically, before I started my PhD, which I started in 2014, the kind of current conversation about uh, language of young people in London was about this uh, uh, dialect called multicultural London English, um, which is kind of uh, was seen as like a, a new dialect that is... Um, emerged out of kind of um, there being lots of uh, migration into London from lots of different places and the kind of different languages that have come into London because of that have therefore affected uh, the way that Londoners speak particularly young Londoners and there are all different things that have changed about the, uh, the dialect um, in particular lots of things uh, pronunciation wise mm. um, like a new pronoun uh, using man as a pronoun um, mm -hmm. for example so lo lots of things have changed and um, even though um, London is really ethnically diverse um, their their findings suggested that ethnicity wasn't connected to language in the same way that it is in other places so for example in America African-American mm -hmm. English is a, you know is a is a, a way of speaking that's predom predominantly spoken by black Americans yeah. right so but we, you know that's not something that um, we've has been shown to exist in in the UK mm. or in London and you know Emily was part of this you know kind of um part of that narrative right that ethnicity isn't something that predicts the way that we're going to speak so in a sense you mean it's kind of a it, it's a form that's used by all ethnicities of a particular yeah. range in London yeah um, and I also looked at a couple of other parts of language as well, um, alongside that, just to kind of get a broader picture of their dialects. 
um, but that was kind of quite light touch. I looked at um, some other pronunciation features. So saying uh, what they call TH fronting, which is where instead of saying three with your tongue between your teeth, you say free like an F sound. Mm -hmm. um, so I looked at, um, because that's something that's also been shown to change. It's been shown to being, uh, to re I think, reducing. Mm. Um, so I was looking at that as well and, and just, yeah, just kind of uh, trying to get a sense of all these things that Jenny and Paul notice in their work. How much are we seeing that in this school? Um, are my intuitions about what I've heard correct? Is it different or is it the same? Mm. Um, and essentially what I found is what they found is was present, but there was a lot more kind of difference between uh, the, the, the different groups of students than um, we might have predicted based off of what they found. Um, and what was really, really interesting was that there was this group of white girls, um, they called themselves the white squad. Uh, they were all, uh, all of a white British background uh, from uh, they're from the local area, but also their parents and grandparents were from the local area as well. Mm -hmm. Um, they did not sound MLE and um, my analysis showed that yeah they weren't you know those two vowels they they sounded completely different to the rest of the kids that I interviewed hmm. um, now Jenny and Paul's work found that if you're white you'll sound like your peers but these girls didn't sound like their peers so that was kind of really really unexpected hmm. um, hmm. one kind of explanation for that is all oh, the the white squad you said that the white squad they hang out with each other um so then they don't have a kind of um mixed ethnicity peer group like the mle literature shows but actually yes they spent you know that was their kind of like their best friends but mm. i also asked them that that's their best friends in school i asked them who their best friends were overall mm. um as part of their interview and i asked them to kind of i asked them to tell me like who they considered to be their closest friends who they spent the most mm. time with because obviously i'm only seeing one one part of their lives um and they all actually reported multi-ethnic friendship networks yeah. um, outside mm -hmm. of school and they you know and they hung out with the other girl you know they weren't isolated at school they hung out with the other um other uh girl kind of friendship groups who were yeah. mixed ethnicity groups so um so yeah so i think so what did you know they, they, what did they what sound did they, like were they more sort of traditionally cockney um kind of somewhere in the middle of that mm. and mle so like not full-on cockney but definitely more yeah. sounded more like that than mle for sure so right. one of the things that was really different about the vowels is um so in mle like face sounds more like this like it's quite short yeah and um and yeah when i analyzed you know i did a phonetic analysis which means looking at like the sound waves and stuff to kind of really understand um, what we're hearing and and that showed it to be really really distinct did they sort of use it as a badge of honor amongst themselves i mean there's lots of chat for young people particularly you know adapting phonological features to sort of mark their the, mark their friendship territory so to speak yeah. did, did you get the sense that that's what they were doing i don't know if i would say it as i don't think it was as explicit as that mm. the kind of you know as a wearing it as a badge of honor but i think that the fact that they spoke that way when all of none of their peers did mm. it's like it's a very intentional kind of like distancing thing going on mm. so yeah. rather i don't think it's necessarily a badge of honor but more just like i'm we're not like you okay. we're not like um 
you know the ethnic minority kids who you know are from kind of migrant families and um, have different cultural experiences I think there was a real kind of distancing going on there even though they were friends with these you know the other girls in their year mm. um, it's kind of it was a kind of mixture of assimilating so the so some of the stuff they would do they would use the um, the language the not language the Lexis the words yeah. um, they would use a lot of the kind of uh, MLE kind of vocabulary um, but then they have this different thing going on with the the the, their accents, the pronunciation they were using. So, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, so Siobhan, um, your work suggested that there can be a conflict between ideas about standard English and how that's enforced and the language use of young people. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think that, um, I think that, I think one thing that really drives that is um, something that's been, has been going on as kind of like, as long as we've exists as humans is that we don't like change right mm. um and then quite often how one of the ways in which that comes out is that um people who are older quite often don't like the way that people who are younger are using language in a way that's different to them um mm. so i think that is kind of uh, something that really underpins this conflict is that um people yeah adults don't like the when teenagers use language in a way that's creative and kind of you know it's just a really important part of being a teenager being able to mm. be creative and kind of yeah. um it's, it's a really important part of kind of for figuring out who you are and kind of uh, forming your identity um but yeah i think adults you know for whatever reason tend to not like that um and then so that's kind of part of that conflict and then i think another part of it is this kind of strange idea that I think happens across languages not specific to English um, that there is kind of uh, one way of speaking that is better or the best mm. um, one way of using language that is preferable um, and um, and because of, uh, that manifests manifests in lots of different ways but one way that it manifests in the UK is that it's in the curriculum there's some really nice work being done at the moment I know Ian Cushing is mm. um, has just released mm. his uh, kind of post PhD articles and uh, he's looked at school language planning and language policy particularly but he also looks a lot at things like uh, word jails and the, mm. and the and the concept of banning mm. being um, being something that's utilized in lots of schools and he understands yeah. why that is but part of his outreach work in the same way that that yours is outward facing as well a lot of his is around trying to get schools to understand that's problematic on a lot of on lot no well i think as a society it's really difficult for us to kind of uh, we've really struggled with uh, linguistic discrimination as a thing mm -hmm. like it is a thing we d people yeah. you know people laugh at working class accents people you know will say things that oh they're not speaking properly they're not smart enough to do this job mm -hmm. yeah. you know actually kind of how you speak has nothing to do with your intelligence mm -hmm. um it can have something to do with education but not your intelligence um yeah, and it's something that um, uh, Walt, Wolf, Walt Wolfram, when I was at NC State, he always used to say it's kind of like the last, uh, you know, we have all these laws against discriminating because of class and because of, you know, because of gender, because of ethnicity, but we don't have any laws about discriminating by language. And actually, you can do all of those discriminations mm. by yeah, talking, true. you know, through yeah. language, mm -hmm. linguistic discrimination. So mm -hmm. it's actually a really, you know, really problematic thing that happens and, and can be really... Um, you know can can really um 
restrict kind of what you know how pupils can succeed in school um so um yeah i think it's really important work that uh, linguists we we need to kind of continue pushing forward with mm. to change the narrative on that so i think you've already alluded to this but i'm just wondering um generally how do you think linguistics can have more of an impact uh, with its research on society because we're seeing quite a big push from universities to make research have impact um, so I'm just wondering, what's your take on that? I think it's a really difficult one, actually, because um, because of the demands of academics in their jobs um, and what they're expected to do now. Academia has really changed over the last kind of uh, couple of decades in kind of what's expected. Um, and um, I think that in an ideal world, you know, we'd, we'd spend a lot more time with the communities that we're researching and um, and ask people what they want to do with this research and mm. kind of it be really kind of participatory and led by the communities even in some instances um, mm. but that's really really time consuming and linguistic analysis on its own is really you know involved in time consuming so it's just you know mm. it's it's I think that I think really what needs to change uh, kind of is what something needs to change at a more kind of institutional level kind of what universities um will facilitate for their staff um for the academics that uh, work for them because um i think a lot of linguists would like to do this type of work but it's just there's the time for it is really difficult and mm. there are other you know they've also got to teach and they've also got to do admin and it's just yeah there's a lot a lot of expectations on them but yeah i think really kind of grounding stuff in the community and doing participatory research is the way way forward with that so siobhan what's your favorite book about language uh my favorite linguistics book is um by norma mendoza denton it's called home girls um i read that book when i was doing my master's and i was like oh my god this is amazing i want to do i want to do research like this um it's a, it's in a school in california and it's about kind of girl gang chicano girl gangs um yeah it's it's such a really good book um it has kind of really detailed linguistic analysis in it but also lots and lots of detail about all of the social stuff that i love as well and what's your favorite linguistic fact it's so difficult. I, I, I think the thing for me that has been I've loved about being a linguist is learning stuff. Uh, when I learn stuff about language, it's kind of like I'm learning stuff about what I, how I use language as well. So I remember mm. things that um, I've learned about um, pronunciation, like um, the fact that in British English we put we insert an R in between words that and end and begin in a vowel, and you just do it without even realising. Um, those types of facts I just find really mind blowing. So I'm going to the cinema in a minute. So in between cinema and in, there's a ruh. Yeah. The first time my attention was caught to that, I was like, no, I don't do that. Oh my God, I do do that. Why do I do that? <laughs> yeah. And then I was like, it's easier to do that. And then um, the lecturer was like, it's actually not easier. Like you're doing an extra sound. And I was like, oh, mm. this is crazy. So when I learn stuff like that, that's my favorite thing about linguistics. And finally, what one piece of advice would you give to someone who's interested in linguistics, maybe wanting to forge a career out of it? I would say, A, go for it. Um, because it'll be really fun but I think um, spend a bit of time uh, looking at um, what types of modules um, that are on offer because it actually can really vary at different universities as to kind of what your mm. course is like I remember talking to somebody when I was doing my undergrad who was at Manchester and they hated it and then they were told they told me about what modules they were doing I was like oh yeah I'd find that boring as well <laughs> because it was kind of because it was a lot more kind of the theoretical stuff about grammar which some people love but I do not you mm. know so um so if you can't find that information you should be able to find it out so kind of think about which bits of linguistics you find interesting 
and uh, find a course that you know talks about those things because otherwise um, you won't really enjoy it. And there's, there's, quite, there's a genuine sort of split, isn't there, between the sort of theoretical linguists and the applied linguists? Yeah, um, there are the some applied... people... Go on. Sorry, go on. I was going to say, there are some people like that, that uh, cross over a little bit with that type of work, like David Hall at Queen Mary University is someone who does kind of dabbles in both. But yeah, you, tend to, you do tend to get that split. So that's it for episode four of Lexis. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe and never miss an episode. By the way, you can see in the description of the podcast some show notes which links to some of the things we've been talking about.